Job chapter 23, and we are going to read the whole chapter. Verse 1 says, Then Job answered and said, Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I might know where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him, so should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what, is, what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore am I troubled at his presence, when I consider I am afraid of him. For God maketh my heart soft, and the Almighty troubleth me, because I was not cut off before the darkness, neither hath he covered the darkness from my face. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather together in this place and to worship you together. And Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we open your word. Speak to us, Lord. Use me. Anoint me, Lord, to bring that which you've laid upon my heart. Father, we also want to lift up Sister Linda Finlay this morning. You know exactly what's going on with that issue with her knee and the troubles that she's had. Father, we ask you for complete healing. Take away the cause of that situation. Take away the pain, the discomfort. Let it be strong and healthy and functional, we pray. In that name that is still above every other name. The name of Jesus. Amen. That's the Lord. Those of you who are familiar with the book of Job will know that it recounts his experience of enduring incredible trials and his struggle to understand the why and the how these things have come to pass in his life. Added to the torment that he is already experiencing is the warped analysis of his three friends, sometimes referred to as Job's comforters, as they also seek to find a reason for his suffering, usually concluding that Job must have sinned. In some form or another, he must have brought this, this ailment upon himself. And in the chapter that we've just read, Job expresses his desire to appear before God to plead his case, to question his trial and to request and find answers from God as to what is going on and why it's going on. He despairs in the fact that he is unable to find God in any of the directions that he looks behind him on the left and on the right and ahead of him. And although this leaves Job somewhat downcast, Job also finds a comfort 
or a refuge in the knowledge that his inability to find God does not mean that God is absent. God knows exactly where Job is at and Job is confident that the Lord will bring him through and that the result of that process will be a more improved version of himself. This confidence causes Job to be determined to stay on track, to hold his course, and even to place greater value on the words of God than on his physical sustenance. And so with this chapter as our platform, I want to begin a series this morning that may last us for the next few Sunday mornings. And the title of that series is this, Finding God in the Four Corners of Your Life. Finding God in the Four Corners of Your Life. And Job, Job we read, spoke about being unable to see God behind him, in front of him, and on the left and on the right. Let's, let's read those verses again from Job chapter 23 where it says in verse 8, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him, he hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. So considering those four directions this morning, I want us to start with what it means to try and define God and how God would have us to see our past, the things that are behind us. Unless you were born this morning before the service, then you have a past. Unless you've just joined us in this world, which I don't think we have any newborns that are only hours old, all of us have got some history. We have a portion of our lives that's already in the archives. It's already filed away. It's already a part of our collection of memories. Whatever shape or form those memories take, they're settled. It's done. It's dusted. We cannot erase them. We cannot rewrite them. Nor can we go back and make a second or third attempt at those areas that, if you're anything like me, you'd like a better outcome for. We were able to somehow go back in a time machine. I'd probably spend more time in the past trying to fix it up than I would in the future. I think maybe that's why the Lord doesn't allow time travel. We just mess everything up. But we can't do that. It it simply can't be done. And often when we think of the past and the impact it has on our present, our focus is on the negative. All of us have negative things in our past in varying degrees. We all have sin. I don't think anybody's excluded from that. We all have sin. We've all made bad choices. I think it's safe to assume we've all got hurts, heartaches, pain, mistreatment, and some folks even various forms of abuse. But these things are a part of our past, but there are also good things that are in our past. Even the most troubled life can have components that include happy memories. And it's the good and the bad things of our past that are woven together that give us the tapestry, if you like, that brings us to the right now, to the present, to the day that we live in. And as a pastor, I'm aware of some of the stories of people's pasts that are here. I'm also aware that some of those stories involve incredible trauma. There are some of you that have been through some things that are hard to comprehend, hard to understand why these things happen. And, and yet your presence here and your faithfulness are testament to the mercy 
and grace of God and his ability to take our past, to forgive, to heal, to restore, and even to glorify himself through it. Amen. God, we need to understand something very clearly. God does not cause our suffering. God does not dish out suffering. He is not a sadist. He is not looking for opportunities for us to be in pain. He does not cause suffering. Sin is the rootstock, if I can put it that way. It is the stump of all suffering. All suffering in one way or another is traced back to sin. Neglect, abuse, loneliness, hopelessness, wickedness are all a product of fallen humanity that is promoted and encouraged by the devil. We can't blame the devil, but he certainly encourages us to participate in those things that cause us to feel and experience pain. And as long as mankind chooses to separate themselves from God, the suffering and the heartache remain unchanged. As long as we refuse to acknowledge that God loves us, that he exists, that he died for us, that he wants to save us from our sins, our heartache stays with us as it is. The suffering is resonant. It stays with us. And it only serves as a source of grief. There's nothing positive about that pain, but it is a source of anguish. But when the brokenness and heartache that we have are brought to Jesus, surrendered to him, even when we're afraid to do so. And if we're honest, sometimes we are scared to allow him to have unrestricted access to our hurts and the agonies of our past. But when we do that, when we are willing to do that, he takes, if I can use that analogy, those threads of our lives that seem to be full of nothing but darkness, where light is absent, and he's able to weave them into a new tapestry that's of his design and his purpose and his understanding. He does not, we have to understand this as well, he does not make them disappear as though they've never happened, even though sometimes we wish he would. We wish he would take the pain and the heartache and somehow hit the delete button and it would no longer exist on our hard drive. But he does not do that. See, this, this thing we're in is real life. It's not a Disney movie. It's not a happily ever after, although it will be when we get to the Lord, but you cannot just make your past vanish. You can't just have a mind wipe and start again, although many of us would like to be able to do that. But he uses even the dark threads to become a part of a complete image that is composed of all of our experiences. Not some of them, but all of them. Amen. They, are not only, he, they not only allow you to experience Jesus as a healer, but they can also be a part of you becoming an instrument to minister healing in the lives of other people. Amen. There is a, a saying that some might say is a cliche, but it's accurate. It says that hurt people hurt people. In other words, when you have been hurt, you are more likely to hurt because in our pain, we respond from a position of hurt, and it's usually not a calm, measured response, but it's something that is defensive. It's, it's, it's retaliatory. We're trying to, where somebody has touched part of us that hurts us, and so we want to hurt in return. I heard something the other day that said something along these lines. I didn't write it down, but it, basically the thought was that when someone is unkind to us, 
or they are unpleasant or even just nasty, they're probably being that way as a result of what is going on within them. And that doesn't excuse their conduct. We're not saying, well, it doesn't matter. I don't believe that's the principle here. But the principle is that if we want to do what God would have us to do, we should not be unkind in return. Because what they need is God's love. What they do not need is us reflecting their unpleasantness back in their face. We are not supposed to be a mirror of somebody's pain and reflect it back upon them. It is a true statement that hurt people do hurt people. Amen. But healed people, healed people can help to heal other people. Now, I know without a doubt that I've never healed anybody yet, but Jesus is the healer. He is the one that can heal every brokenness, every heartache, every pain, every situation. But he can use you when you have hurt that he has healed. He can use you to walk beside somebody else as he takes them through the healing process. I believe we need to be careful that we don't say, I understand exactly where you're at because everybody is unique. But we can, we can say, I've been somewhere similar. I've been hurt. I've been in that place of despair and the Lord brought me through. Let me be an encouragement to you while he heals your brokenness. Amen. And walk beside them through that healing process. Amen. Nobody cares more about you than Jesus does. No matter how much you love somebody, how willing you are to sacrifice for somebody, nobody cares for you like Jesus does. And nobody can heal you like he can. Amen. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll start at verse 19. First Corinthians 6 and 19 says, What? Know you not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Everybody say, bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen. When we are born again of water and spirit, as the Bible teaches us, Often, we only think about that from the viewpoint of a looking ahead perspective. We think about how that I am saved from my sins now, and if I walk with God, that I'm going to make it to heaven. And that's the truth. We believe that. Amen? That's our hope. We're going to be with the Lord. But the Scripture says that we are not our own, that He paid a price for us, that He purchased us. Now, we we don't like to think about that concept because it has a negative connotation with humanity we think of slave trade and 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 human trafficking and that kind of thing but but jesus didn't pay for us in that sense he paid for us in that he paid our debt and because he paid our debt and redeemed us he owns us we might not like that concept but that's what the bible says you are not your own you belong to the lord and we think about this price as being the price of redemption and of the paying of our sins, and that is true. But if he paid a price for me, and he paid a price for you, then we belong to him, then all of us belongs to him. All of us. Not just our life moving forward, 
but also the pathway that brought us here. When he bought me, sounds funny to say, but when he purchased me, he purchased the whole package. Not just the present going into eternity, but the whole package. So in other words, he owns our past. When he paid a price to purchase me, he purchased my present, my eternity, and my past. Every heartache, every abuse, every bad choice, every pain, if I belong to him, then so does my past. He doesn't get the sanitized version. When he bought us, he bought the whole package. So when you take that in the logical process, that means that if he wants me to forgive, that I must forgive because I belong to him. I'm not my own. If he wants to heal some part of me that I would rather not acknowledge exists, then he must be allowed to heal it because I belong to him because he paid the price. If he wants to release something from my past to stop it interfering with my present, to bring liberty into my future, then I must allow him to do so because I belong to him. Amen. See, we sing songs about giving him our all. I will give you all. I will give you all. If all is what you ask of me, I will not withhold. And again, our mindset is usually thinking about today and tomorrow. But it also includes yesterday. And I think sometimes we fail to recognize that everything in the past also belongs to him. Now, the sin of the past is forgiven. It's under the blood. I'm not saying that he holds that over us. But when I belong to him, everything that I bring into that relationship, when he adopts me by filling me with his spirit and I become his son, whereby I cry, Abba, Father, as Romans tells me, that means that everything that's still left, it's residue in terms of the pain and the scarring and the dysfunctionality. He owns that as well. It belongs to him. When Jesus paid the price for you and I, he knew exactly what he was buying. He knew exactly what it was that he was purchasing. We've said this several times recently, but there were no surprises for him to discover later on. When he purchased you, when he paid a price for your soul, he knew every single detail of the person that he was buying. Nothing was hidden from him. When you and I purchase something that has a past, for example, a house or a car, Sometimes we get things that we were unaware of. The person selling us the house or the car isn't going to tell us about all of its faults or problems. In fact, most of the time, they're going to conceal them from us so that they can get a better price. And then after you live in that house for a little while or you drive that car for a little while, you find out some things that you now own that were not in the contract. They were hidden from view. There's an oil leak in that car that can't seem to be fixed. The air conditioner doesn't work on hot days. There's a strange noise coming from the engine. That house you purchased, the plumbing in the kitchen floods when you use the dishwasher. The oven doesn't work properly when it rains. Your whole backyard is flooded because the neighbor's yards are higher than yours and they all drain in. These are all things you find out after the fact. 
And depending on how severe the details, sometimes you might not have made that purchase had you known all of the story. When I first got my driver's license, which is a long time ago now, my first car was my mother's car. I bought it off my parents. It was a really cool car to be seen in when you're a young guy. It was a white Mazda station wagon. Was, uh, yeah. But it was cheap. It ran well and it got me where I needed to go. But after a while, when I decided that I didn't have enough debt and I needed to get a car loan, the foolishness of youth, I went to buy another car. And uh, it was a private sale, so I went to a person's house and had a look at the car, took it for a little drive, pretending that I knew what I was looking for because I don't know anything about cars. And because I knew I didn't know anything about cars, I wanted my mechanic to have a look at the car before I bought it. And so I said to the owner, is it okay if I take the car home and get my mechanic to look at it and then I'll let you know if I'm willing to buy the car? And they said, sure, that's fine. You can take this. She said, but we've taken really good care of this car, so if you're going to take it, please keep it undercover. I thought, that's a reasonable request. No problem at all. So I took it to the mechanic. He checked it out. The engine was fine. Everything else was fine. He said, yeah, it's, it's in pretty good shape. So I bought the car. I bought the car. Now, one of the reasons I got rid of the old car was that when it rained, it used to leak around the windscreen. And water used to come into the car. And that wasn't so much of a problem because that old Mazda station wagon had vinyl seats. So they were really easy to dry. You just got an old towel and dried the seats and away you went. But I remember very clearly when I bought the next car, the first night I worked the night shift and it poured all night. How happy I was thinking when I go out to the car park, I'm driving home in a dry car. When I got out to the car park and gleefully unlocked the door of my new purchase, the front seats were saturated. And I found out the real reason why they wanted me to keep the car undercover. Because they knew that I had another leaky windscreen. And it, was, it took everything I had not to sit in my lovely new car and cry. Because it was actually a worse leak than the old car had. And I had to spend a significant amount of extra money to have the windscreen taken out and the rust, blah, 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 blah. I didn't know that's what I was getting. It was an unpleasant surprise. But then it took a step further. We drove that car to Western Australia when we moved here in 1997. Now, prior to living here, we lived in North Queensland, which doesn't really have anything close to what you would call a winter. So there was never a use for the heater in that car. But when we came here and I went to put the heater on, nothing happened. It turned out that there'd been a pressure problem with the radiator, and so they just cut the heater pipe off and blocked it because who needed a heater in North Queensland? But when I came here, and in my first Western Australian winter, Brother Paul, living in your mother's house, which was like an icebox, I think that's why Sister Turkin didn't live so long. She was chilled. But... That house, when I would come out at five in the morning to go to work and it would be one degree or less and hit that heater and all I got was cold air, I found out another surprise. Other than those two things, it wasn't a bad car. Until it ended up blowing up back black smoke to, to hide the entire street and it had to go. Amen. But you see, when God paid the price for my soul, 
and for your soul. He knew every leak, every flaw, every single damaged part. There were no surprises like when I bought that car, and I'm sure some of you gentlemen particularly could stand up and take turns telling stories about the lemons that you've bought through the years as well. Brother Glass tried to sell me a dud in Townsville years ago. He bought a car, turned out to be a lemon. He did his best to convince my cousin and I to buy it off him, but we didn't want to know about it. (laughs) Because you buy things and you don't know. But the amazing thing about the love and the grace and the mercy of God is that when he went to the cross and paid that price, he knew every single flaw that I had. He knew every part of me that didn't work properly, every heartache, every hurt, every bit of brokenness, every, every dark thread in my history. He had the whole list. And yet the Bible says that he was still willing to go through with the purchase, knowing what he was getting, knowing the duds, if you'll excuse me, that he was buying, knowing the broken humanity that he was willing to give everything for. He knew every single failure that I would ever make, and he still paid the price. And the devil would come along and whisper in our ears and say, you are a failure. You are not worth the love of God. And the thing is, those things are correct. But he knew it when he purchased us. He knew it when he laid down his life, and he did it anyway. And so when the devil whispers in our ears and says, you failed too many times, you uh, just done the same thing again and again and again we can say but he still paid for me hallelujah hallelujah because he knows that despite all of my issues somebody said that person's got more issues than the time magazine and i understand that concept Despite of all of my issues, he is able to heal, to restore, and to fashion an earthen vessel. And then for reasons sometimes I do not understand, to fill it with his spirit and demonstrate his power through that flawed and broken vessel that he's still working on. Because there are sometimes it leaks out of me when I'm not the vessel I'm supposed to be. But he says, I'm still going to pour it back in. We'll patch that up. We'll fix that. We'll remake that. We'll remold that. I'm still going to pour it in. Even when I spill it. Even when it leaks out of me. Even when I contaminate it. He pours in again because he said, I paid for it. I earned that vessel. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We love to read the 18th chapter of the book of Jeremiah where Israel is compared to a lump of clay upon a potter's wheel and how the, the, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet and, and he says, watch that potter. And the potter tries to shape that clay and there's, a, there's something wrong with it, the clay. It's marred in the hand of the potter. and he, So he makes it again. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, I can do the same thing with Israel. Even though there are flaws, I can make it again. And we we read that passage and we think, yes, God is able to work in us. He's changing me into His image. And that's all true. But what we have to realize is that the lump of clay that is me on the potter's wheel, 
and the lump of clay that is you on the potter's wheel sits there, including our past. It includes our heartaches, not our sins. They're gone. I wish that when I was baptized that every memory of every pain and every flaw and every shortcoming was gone, but it's not. And when he takes me as that lump of clay and puts me on that wheel and begins to fashion it, even though my past is in there, he's working. He's molding. He's shaping. If you've ever seen a pot of work, they, they usually will sit there and there's a, they have a bucket of water next to them because they wet, they wet their hands and it's that, that moisture that allows them to shape. The clay has got to be kept soft and moist and that allows them to fashion it. And he keeps taking his love, reaching into that bucket of his mercy and applying it and putting a little pressure and fashioning that ugly looking thing that was just a lump of dirt in the ground into a vessel that he's willing to put his spirit into. We have to be careful that we don't sanitize where we're at in our walk with God. He bought everything. He owns every part of who I am. And when he took us from that field, you see, the potter would go out to the, the field and take the clay out of the earth. That's why when Judas was buried, they buried him in a potter's field because the ground was dug out. It was an easy place to bury somebody. They were already made holes. And often the poor and the un those that they didn't know who they belonged to were buried there. But when the potter goes out and he digs his shovel or whatever implement he was using into that ground and takes out that clay, it's full of all manner of things. Just like you and I, and he knew every single detail. He knew everything that was in us, every heartache, every trauma, every deep, dark secret, and he took it out anyway. Because he knew that he could do something with it. This morning, if you were to close your eyes and remember, possibly even uncomfortably, the worst parts of your past, the things that if you were given the opportunity to erase one thing from your memories, if you would think of that one thing this morning, he knew it was there. When he went to Calvary, he knew that thing that if you could do anything, you would take it away. He knew it was there. And he paid anyway. He paid anyway. Because he knew that at some point in my life and some point in your life, I would come in contact with the gospel. Whether it was through the witness of another person, whether I stumbled into an apostolic church and heard the message of baptism in Jesus' name, whether I was born in this thing and had to find it along the way for myself. He knew that at some point, somebody would share the Word of God with us. And that seed would fall into our hearts and begin to grow. But he knew that when that happened, there would already be a past. There would already be a broken vessel. Hallelujah. You know, sometimes, it seems ironic, but sometimes we're more willing to trust Him with the eternity that we can't see than the past that we cannot stop seeing. We try to hide that, and yet he's saying, I can see it anyhow. If you'll give it to me, that becomes a part of the tapestry. He doesn't take those dark threads and bleach them white. He weaves them in to make something that is of his design. That's one of the things that's so awesome about God is that he can take what we perceive as hopelessness and bleak darkness that there is, seems to be no way out. He's able to still take that. And the worst of lives... He can still fashion 
into a vessel of glory for His name. Hallelujah. God knew it was there. When He stepped into my life as a seven-year-old boy and turned my family's future around, He knew how many times between 7 and 44 that I would mess up. He knew how many times I would fail Him. He knew how many times I would be backslidden in my heart and choose sin over godliness, and yet He still said, I paid for Him anyway. And I don't understand that, and I don't believe either to you. But I'm glad that he did. That old chorus says, I don't know why Jesus loved me. I don't know why he came. I don't know why he sacrificed his life. Oh, but I'm glad. I'm so glad that he did. There are so many stories, and I'm coming to a close with this. There are so many stories that we read and hear of people that have bought something at a second-hand shop or a garage sale or even a junkyard that to others passing by seem worthless and yet it turns out to be incredibly valuable. The difference between walking past junk and seeing a treasure is knowing what you're looking at. To the trained eye, somebody else's junk is worth an incredible amount of money. There are even, I think there's even TV shows now. My parents watch them sometimes where people go around countries looking in other people's barns and storage sheds and antique shops and looking for that one particular item that might be on sale for $2.75 but it's really worth $2 million. And we've all heard so many stories about those particular situations. When Jeremiah, when the Lord first approached Jeremiah, and Jeremiah basically was overwhelmed with his insufficiency to be a prophet, to be a man of God, God said to him, He said, Before I formed you in the womb, before you were conceived, before even your parents were married, before you, He said, I knew you. That means that he knew every single thing about me, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he said, I'm paying for it anyway. I'll buy it anyway. Hallelujah. There's a story that I, I heard. I, I haven't bothered to research the factual nature of it. So if it's an urban myth, I'm going to have to ask for your forgiveness. Some of you have heard it, but it's a story about a man who bought an old broken down Harley Davidson motorcycle in a garage sale fallen to bits, wasn't running properly and he thought it was a bargain so he bought this thing and took it home and like many projects that men have it sat in his garage for a long time until finally his wife said do something with it or get rid of it and so like so many men he decided now was a good time to do something with it so he began to work at restoring this old Harley Davidson motorcycle and realized there were some things that he needed he contacted the company and said, I, I'm looking for some particular parts. And they said, well, you know, what's the model? And he gave it to them over the phone. And they said, we'll call you back in a little while. And, and they called him back and they said, can you just read that serial number back to us again? And he did it and they confirmed it again and again. And they said, we want you to lift up the seat on that motorcycle. And this man was like, I need parts for the engine. I don't need a new seat. But he did what they asked him to do. And he said, they said, what's under the seat? And engraved in the metal underneath the seat of that motorcycle, the story goes with the words, the king. It was a custom-made Harley-Davidson for Elvis Presley. 
and suddenly that piece of junk that he bought at a garage sale became an instant treasure. And that's a little bit what it's like with us. We are of no value in the sight of the world. We're just ordinary people, broken like everybody else. But when I'm baptized in his name, when the name of the king is applied to my life, my value changes. I'm still flawed, still have a past, still got the dark threads in my tapestry, but everything turns around when I belong to the king. Stand with me if you would this morning. Romans 5 and 8, many of you could quote this. It says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We couldn't even hide it when he died for us. We were sinners. He said, I'll still pay the price. One modern translation puts it brutally like this. It says, But God put his love on the line for us while we were of no use whatsoever to him. Let's lift our hands and worship him this morning. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Bless your name, O God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Even though the scars of sin and the damage of bad choices may fill your past, when we give that to Him, He's able to take situations that were hopeless and show us how they can provide hope. He's able to take all of our mistakes and our mess-ups somehow beyond our understanding and weave them into His design for our lives. Not everything in our past is negative. Let's not finish on that this morning. So much of what he's done for us is a testimony of his keeping power. We can look back and see the hand of God again and again and again, even, even when we weren't serving him. I can look back at times in my youth when I was backslidden and my heart was far from God and standing where I stand, I can see that God kept me because he paid for me. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning. Lord, that you 